0: I remained fascinated by um, their fifth album, Big Thing. Uh, This is an album that they barely mention. It's glossed over in almost all interviews with the band, not as much as the album that followed it, which was an absolute train wreck called Liberty. Um, Liberty was such a catastrophe that Duran Duran didn't even tour it. It's the first album they didn't tour in support of. I mean, it was pretty much disavowed within a month of its release the band had a lot of interpersonal issues um, and substance abuse issues which are famously recounted uh, now especially in John Taylor's memoir when I talked to their manager early in the spring of this year on a kind of quick little email exchange she put it to the band she said the band were interested and asked if I could Um, fly to South America to interview them. When you're dealing with a band as famous and successful and wealthy as Duran Duran, you need to get yourself in that room if you want a chance to talk to them. Uh, I wasn't going to be able to do that. Financially, I couldn't afford to do it. Their manager was extremely nice to even speak to me um, and, and take my call and take my emails. Because it did seem anecdotally they were interested in the idea of turning Big Thing into a talking point it's an original idea for them, because all they hear when they go on interviews is, what was it like filming the video for Rio? (laughs) You know, I mean, they get the same questions every time out. So when you've been a band for, you know, decades, you get real tired of that. when someone has a sort of unique perspective, you're you're curious, but you're not so curious that you're gonna like do them a favor. You've never heard of them, it's just some kid. So, you know, it, it didn't happen. And I told David, you know, look, I wasn't able to get the band in the room, and I'm not going to, you know, put you in a position to have to tell me, like, we're not going to publish a book that doesn't have any original content. We're too deep into this thing. I'm fascinated by a big thing, not because it's a resounding artistic success or this lost gem, but because it's any good at all. It really shouldn't have been even listenable. Uh, Duran Duran could not have been more out of touch you know, as an entity, in 1988, it, it wasn't that they personally were. It's that the band that they were, you know, saddled with being, had come and gone. Duran Duran was over. They had a really nice echo with Notorious, but it was extremely obvious that Notorious was the product of Nile rogers more than Duran Duran. When you're the biggest band in the world. And you're making literally corporation-sized profits. You don't just turn that off. So Duran Duran weren't really allowed to break up when things went south after Seven and the Ragged Tiger and this really horrendously bloated period of commercial overexposure. I mean, they had a board game out into the arena. They had this awful protracted pseudo-live film called Arena. Um, You know, these are things that they're embarrassed of. These are really sharp guys. For that reason, I was really fascinated to hear about what it was like when they did this record big thing. In 1988, when they were putting this record together, In Excess was what Duran Duran had been in the early 80s. They weren't as big as Duran but they were massive. In 1988, Kick was what Thriller had been in 1982, or maybe not Thriller, let's say Synchronicity, whatever, it was one of the biggest albums of the 1980s. It was that year. So, of course, Simon Le Bon grew his hair out, like Michael Hutchins, and it looked terrible. And I think he had been you know, hit in the bottle or something because he had put on some weight. Um, I'm not you know, anorexic myself, but I'm not the lead singer in Duran Duran either. There was always a lot of pressure on him to keep his weight down um, because he had you know, chubby cheeks. He was a pretty boy. But by the time a Big Thing, it was a different question entirely. When they did the, the video for the third single, Do You Believe in Shame, he's wearing an overcoat. You know, they get in the studio, what's going on in England? Manchester, Baggy, house music is everywhere. Uh, Frankie Knuckles has been coming up the chart, uh, Mr. Fingers. Um, the UK charts have gone through the whole Jack period of Jack your body, Jack master play. It's just like, you know, a lot of fad stuff was going on in the mid eighties in the UK. But the house music thing had teeth. And it really was creating the subculture that exploded into, you know, rave and all of these things kids love to talk about. From, you know, 88 to 91, 92, um, things really were in a groundswell with underground electronic music, especially in England. Duran Duran were clocking that, and not in an opportunistic or cynical way. you got to realize these guys had been essentially DJs of their own club. They did some really cool radio sets that you can look up on the internet and find where you know they were kind of laying down the mood that had been in their club the Run Runner um, in the very early 80s and when they started I mean they sounded like Blur I always was totally blown by how people were listening to those early Blur records and they weren't like well, this just sounds like, like you know, when Duran Duran were wearing pseudo Berlin suits and, you know, their bangs were like this, um, in '81. They hit their stride when Simon Le Bon started wearing white coats and pastel shirts underneath. They became part of a very broad cultural moment. It was a fashion moment, it was a music moment, it was a look your best, beautiful people moment. MTV was taking off, it was taking Duran Duran with it, vice versa, Duran Duran was taking MTV with them. Um, They were all climbing on each other's shoulders and they were getting really high into the stratosphere. To the point where you had this thing happening in 83, 84, and very much in 85, where Duran Duran thought they were actors and they weren't the only band. There were a lot of musicians who thought, like, they were actors. That was a completely natural transition. You were gonna make movies now. You know, you were Indiana Jones. Um, And they fell for it pretty badly. The Save a Prayer video, there is some really, really embarrassing shit out there. But it's great, because they were kids. They were, like, early 20s. They were so young, and they were loving it. They didn't know what the fuck was going on. There's no one there to keep you in check. There's no one there to, to keep your ego at bay. The only people around you are all telling you you're even better than you think you are. It's not just coke. It's, it's a psychological thing. You are surrounded by people who are telling you you are the second coming. They're telling you you're the Beatles. Somehow Duran Duran survived this. They had really strong managers coming out of the Rum Runner and um, those guys were there for them. But they wanted to break up. Now they couldn't turn off the money. So I mentioned this earlier. What they did is they started two side projects. One was Arcadia, which is Simon LeBon. Nick Rhodes. Now Nick has always been portrayed as the arty one and he did interviews with Andy Warhol and was just you know always talking about his photography that he did. That was his kind of character in the band. He was the arty one. John Taylor wanted to rock. Andy Taylor wanted to rock. When they were down in Australia doing Seven and the Ragged Tiger, their just protracted awful difficult third mega album that was a complete shit show. they met Nile Rodgers from Chic. Now, Nile was down there working on Original Sin, In Excess's first solid hit. But Nile had done something a lot more important than In Excess's Original Sin. Nile did David Bowie's Let's Dance. When you're Duran Duran and you're the biggest fan in the world and you go out and you do your two side projects, one of them, I think Simon Le bon said that he thought that uh, Arcadia album, So Red the Rose, was the most pretentious album ever recorded. He's not wrong. It's really bad. Robert Palmer, who was previously just kind of a blue-eyed soul anomaly with a couple of you know ballads to his name, um, he wants to do the Bowie thing. So Taylor's, well, they're not related. Uh, John and Andy Taylor get together with the drummer from Chic, I believe, and Robert Palmer, and they do the power station. Artistically, not a lot going on here. The story Taylor tells is they were working on what became Some Like It Hot as a kind of like Caribbean cool pastiche song. And like Robert Palmer walked in the room and he went like, and it's hot when the heat is on. And like that's that's how the song happened. He finished the line, Some Like It Hot, with that, and then boom. The power station were hugely successful they sold tons of records in america and all over the world and they had a big you know they were playing big festival dates um people were thinking this was just going to be the thing. It was going to take off. And Duran Duran was over. <laughs> Done? Just get yourself on time. Yeah, now i going to do it. Yes. yes, let's get out of here. What happened, and no one's ever told it in these terms, but it seems to me Robert Palmer kind of fucked them. He decided he was going to go do a solo career with all the lessons he'd learned from the boys in Duran Duran, and he went and did Riptide and Heavy Nova with two indistinguishable hit singles addicted to love and simply irresistible uh these are two of the most cynical pieces of dog shit you're ever going to hear I don't mind the songs. The thing that pisses me off is he did these two videos with all these leggy model women in black tube dresses and just like smattered with red watery lipstick, you know, mugging and and shaking it behind him. And he's dressed up like a character out of fucking Wall Street. It's just the grossest, most misogynistic, macho, bloat shit. But he's dead now. Nobody in Duran Duran's ever said a bad word about him that I know of. They were probably friends through the whole thing. But the way it looks from the outside is pretty unseemly. After Robert Palmer bags on the power station, Duran Duran are like, you know, we've done our thing. The side project thing wasn't that fulfilling. We're still Duran Duran. You know, while we've been apart for almost two years, we've continued to make millions and millions of dollars on trading cards. Uh, Nile Rodgers came in and turned the reflex into a huge hit for us. I mean, the song was a piece of crap until he took a scissors to the tape and made it like this huge hit. And, you know, he turned a song that was it was exactly the same as every other single they've had. The Reflex New Moon on Monday—it's all the same, right? And it's Duran Duran. It's their sound. Um, not to take anything away from that, but they were a very conservative band in terms of changing up their sound until they met Nile Rogers. and he took Reflex and turned it into like a huge, hard, you know, crashing mid-eighties Frankie Goes to Hollywood thing, and it saved Duran Duran. It made them. It helped them transition into the kind of, you know, white denim collar-up thing, away from the pin-up boy, cutesy thing. It made him a little bit more edgy, you know, because Wham! and all this other shit was going on. They, they needed to update their image, and the reflex, the video and the song did that. What were they going to do next? Well, they did this, they, they fell apart. They did the two side projects. When they got back together, they got back together with Niall. And what was going on at that time, 1985, 86... Prince. Prince was basically God in 1985. He still is. Purple Rain is all Prince, that's the thing. You know, Quincy Jones, Nile Rodgers, you got all these people that are making these other classic albums. Prince did everything himself. You can't make a big enough case for how incredible that guy is. And so <laughs> Duran Duran in the studio and with Nile Rodgers and what do we do now? Well, Nile's coming off huge, you know, horn hits for Bowie and Let's Dance. And, you know, Prince is coming out with Kiss. In the, in the mid-80s, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and, you know, the Oberheim OB-8 and, and Sonic Mirage keyboard synth, the, the orchestra hit. You know, Janet Jackson's Nasty, the control period. The orchestra hits are everywhere. Notorious didn't really go that far. It wasn't like the Human League's Human um, or that Janet Jackson record. It was still swingy. It was still full band sounds. Apart from the, the title track, Notorious, which is a fucking phenomenal single, the record wasn't really there. They didn't have it all together because they were kind of like letting Nile Rodgers drive because they were just getting back together and they were very tentative about, you know, what, what they were and who their identity was. Predictably, critics hated Duran Duran. They had always hated them. And so they laid everything at Nile Rogers' feet. They were just like, well, duh. You know, they went in the studio with Nile Rogers. They came out wearing, you know, white shirts and, and black suit coats. And they, they look really mature. And, you know, they got the black and white video. And it just it looked like they really had just pulled a couple pages out of Bowie's book. And so critically, they got absolutely tarred and feathered. And they personally were starting to get a little bit out of control, too. Um, just Simon LeBron was really acting very flaky around this time. You see interviews and he just is out of his fucking mind. He, he's just, they didn't know, they were coming into their late 20s. And so they didn't know what they were supposed to be anymore. They tried to get all macho for a period with the leather jackets and then they were, you know, they kept talking about how many chicks they were banging and it just got really weird. Uh, 80, the 86 period with Notorious. Nobody remembers this stuff, but it was pretty ugly. So then they kind of got their feet under them, and they're like, "Well, let's just let's become our own thing. Again. We're Duran Let's do it ourselves. Let's take everything we've learned, and let's make our own album." So they go into the studio, and they come up with three pretty solid singles. Um, I don't want your love. Hey. Take a chance Even if it's only Only while we're dancing in the night All she wants is All And Do You Believe in Shame Do you believe in love Do you believe in love There was also a song called Drug which they had done a kind of um, I don't know, it was Daniel Abram or I think it was Daniel Abram, the producer, had done a really hard hitting cut hit version of drug that a, uh, John Taylor thought was should have been a lead single. He was like he thought that was the best thing that came out of all those sessions. And I think he he almost quit the band over it. Um, probably because he was like in like coke rage. Arcadia...